Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Metastatic Triple Negative Breast Cancer Strategies to Cope. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today and for many of these uh, programs that we're offering. And today's program is made possible by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, Gilead, a grant from Genentech, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for supporting this program today. Now, we have many uh, participants on the program today. There are over 258 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Kenya, Malaysia, Nigeria, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So this bit of a global call as well. And it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jen Rosa Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, Division, of he of Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. Dr. Grana will be addressing the following three topics, updates on the treatment of metastatic triple negative breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, novel treatment therapies including biomarkers, diagnostic testing, genomics, and sequencing of treatments, and next will be the role of precision medicine in improving treatment choices. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be with the group. I'm going to begin by talking briefly about triple negative breast cancer in general. It's a variant of breast cancer whose features are, as many of you already know, that it's estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 new negative. Although there are many more sophisticated diagnostics that use genomic profiling to define what triple negative or basal cancers are, and that's not something we can go into today. It's more common in younger women, in African-American women, in BRCA1 positive individuals, and it accounts for about 15% of all breast cancer. Behavior, it's a little bit more advanced at presentation and has a slightly uh, less favorable prognosis. For early-stage disease, recurrences tend to happen a little earlier uh, in the first one to three years post-diagnosis. Metastatic triple-negative breast cancer is a disease that has spread beyond the breast and the local lymphatic channels to either bone, lymph nodes, lung, liver, brain. The majority of women in the United States have a prior diagnosis of breast cancer and then go on to develop metastatic disease. Therefore, they already have a cancer team that's guiding them. But about 10 to 15% present with metastatic disease as their first diagnosis of breast cancer, and they need to establish that cancer team. 
in other countries, the number of women that are presenting with metastatic triple negative disease without a prior diagnosis is much higher. How is it diagnosed? How is metastatic disease diagnosed? It's diagnosed typically with signs and symptoms of disease. Uh, It may be in the breast or in large nodes, or the woman may have symptoms of disease such as shortness of breath, abdominal symptoms, bone pain, or headache. It may present with laboratory abnormalities such as a high calcium or a high alkaline phosphatase or it may present as an imaging abnormality. Oftentimes, a scan done for something else uh, shows an abnormality that then leads to further diagnostic workup. What's the appropriate workup for a woman where you suspect metastatic disease? It really entails three things, making a diagnosis, assessing the extent of disease, Uh, so you can have a better sense of prognosis and treatment needs. And number three, determining your plan of treatment. How do we make a diagnosis? Ideally, the first step is a biopsy, a biopsy of a distant site to prove that it is breast cancer and not another malignancy or a benign condition. So if someone has a bone abnormality, there are other things that it could be besides breast cancer, and you need to know that. You need to confirm that you're dealing with metastatic disease. You also want to repeat the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 new as they can change in the process of developing metastasis. It's rare, but sometimes you can get an estrogen receptor positive uh, disease or HER2 new positive, and that would change your treatment plan. You also want to get tissue from your biopsy for more sophisticated testing that can aid you in treatment planning. And that's where the whole concept of genomic profiling otherwise known as next-generation sequencing or precision medicine comes in. That type of test entails sending a piece of tissue to be analyzed, looking for genetic markers that can be used to guide treatment planning. There are some commercial companies out there that do this. Foundation uh, is one company you may have heard of. Keras is another. There are some institutions that do their own in-house next-generation sequencing. Uh, And for the woman where you may not have enough material in your biopsy to send for this type of testing, we now have the capacity to send blood for tumor-derived DNA that can give us very similar information. So the key is precision medicine and next-generation sequencing is something to be done at the beginning of your diagnosis so that the information can be used to guide treatment planning. What can we find through precision medicine? We can find features that can suggest that immunotherapy will be beneficial, things such as PD-L1, microsatellite instability, tumor mutation burden. Those are features that suggest that immunotherapeutic agents, uh, such as Keytruda, for example, may be beneficial. You may find features that suggest that other drugs called PARP inhibitors may work, For example, you may find that there's a BRCA mutation in the tumor. It may be a hereditary mutation or something that is just happening in the tumor per se that can guide you towards use of drugs such as Linparza. Or you may find markers that may suggest that novel drugs that are being studied in clinical trials could be useful. And again, one of the things that we look for as we get these results back from from the next generation sequencing is what trials are being done that this patient may be a candidate for. 
So once you've done your biopsy, you've established your diagnosis, you've ordered your next generation sequencing, what comes next? Staging studies. And that is really looking to assess the extent of disease. CAT scan, bone scan, or PET scan can be used to assess how uh, extensive is the disease. Is it in the lung? Is it in the liver? Is it just in bone? And there's a lot of debate as to whether PET is better or CT and bone scan are equivalent. Um, MRI of the brain is done if a patient has symptoms that would suggest it. Labs are done to assess organ function as you're planning treatment. Tumor markers, uh, which are proteins shed by the tumor into the blood, are done because if they're elevated, they can be followed to assess response to therapy and can be very helpful. We don't follow tumor markers in early stage breast cancer, but I always get them in metastatic disease. And if they're abnormal, then I follow them. Now, I was asked to talk about the impact of COVID-19. Uh, I would say that the impact of COVID-19 has been more on early stage disease than it has been on metastatic disease. And in early stage disease, it has led to later stage of diagnosis because women are delaying mammography. In the beginning, we were delaying surgeries. Um, and it did affect almost clinical trial enrollment was affected at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm happy to say that fortunately, most institutions have uh, come back fully online. Most centers are fully back in operation. Our services are safe. We have a full complement of services. And again, uh, I'm still seeing women who delayed their, their evaluation, but I'm hoping that that's a thing of the past. Uh, teams, however, are working harder than ever to deal with the patient's sense of isolation and sense of vulnerability because many institutions have policies where you cannot bring visitors into your cancer center, you cannot bring visitors into infusion, uh, so the patient is coming in alone for many visits and our teams are having to work harder than ever uh, to communicate with families, to do FaceTime visits, to do telehealth visits, et cetera, to communicate. Let's then move on to treatment of metastatic breast cancer, metastatic triple negative breast cancer. By definition, this is a cancer that has no benefit with hormonal or endocrine therapy, and there's no benefit from the HER2-new-based therapies that come with Herceptin, Progetta, or other. Yet it is very responsive to a variety of chemotherapy agents. The choice depends on what drugs the patient received previously, how long it was that those drugs were given, whether there are residual side effects such as neuropathy from those prior treatments, and also patient wishes. Uh, does the patient want to begin with an oral agent versus an IV agent? What are the patient's wishes around preventing hair loss versus accepting hair loss? Because that always you know, affects the decision. Some examples of treatment selection that we consider, uh, for example, if a patient has features on their next generation sequencing that predict uh, a responsiveness to immunotherapy. For example, if the patient is PD-L1 positive or has MSI high or PMB high, those are patients that we would combine chemotherapy with pembrolizumab. Uh, and there's data that it can be a very effective strategy. There are a variety of chemotherapy agents that are usually given as single agents. Although combinations uh, can be given, uh, they're more toxic, but they can be given when we have a more extensive disease burden and we feel that we need to get control of disease. So if someone has extensive liver disease or extensive lung disease, we may use two drugs, whereas if their disease is less aggressive, we may go with one drug. Examples of drugs that have activity include capecitabine, Zolota, 
carboplatinum, Gemzar, Doxel, Halivan, Ixabepilone. There are a lot of drugs. Even an older regimen called CMF has a fair amount of activity in triple negative disease. But again, uh, there's a novel new drug that was recently developed and approved. It's called Sasituzumab gavatican or Trotilvi, as some of you will have heard. New and exciting new agent that's been added uh, that needs a fair amount of management in terms of toxicity, but very active. And a choice of all of these is made between the patient and the treating physician, and the reality is that most patients will go from one to another and will utilize many of these drugs. In addition to chemotherapy or immunotherapy, uh, there are other adjuncts that need to be considered. So bone-directed therapy if a patient has bone involvement, radiation for symptomatic uh, management if a patient is having sites of pain. There's a choice of liver-directed therapy such as Y90 or radiofrequency ablation if the patient has primarily disease limited to the liver. So the plan that's put together is complex and always is collaborative. I also would finish by saying that you should always look for clinical trials and opportunities to participate in those because it's a great way to get access to novel therapies that may otherwise not be available in the day-to-day treatment plan. And I'll stop there as others will uh, bring on much more exciting work. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grana. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful way to set this whole stage for today's program. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Felipe Lins. Dr. Lins is a breast medical oncologist, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Lins will be addressing clinical trial updates, how research offers additional treatment options, and tips to prevent and manage side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lins. Thank you very much, and I'd like to start by thanking for the invitation to be here today. It's it's a a pleasure. I was here uh, with some of you last year, and and it was a a fantastic event. And so thank you for having me again. And I wanted to thank Dr. Grana as well, because I think that her introduction about triple negative breast cancer was fantastic and made... Uh, my job now much easier, so I will just follow her steps. And before we start, I wanted to share with you the definition about clinical trials from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, on their webpage. And they define clinical trials as research studies in which people volunteer to help find answers to specific health questions, and when carefully conducted, They are the safest and fastest way to find new treatments and ways to improve health. So I think that these are all very important terms to have in mind when we talk about clinical trial updates and how research offers additional treatment options. So first of all, it's volunteer. So no one should be forced to be part of a clinical trial. Having said so, everyone should be offered participation in a clinical trial at every step of their journey of breast cancer, and in particular metastatic triple negative breast cancer, as much as there is available in the place where they are being treated, or every patient should be able to be able to discuss what is available out there and is a clinical trial the best answer, the best option for me right away. But it's something volunteer, but that the patients should be offered. And then it's 
the safest and fastest way to find new treatments. So I, I always talk to patients that what is the standard of care, and I might have said this last year, as of 2021, were clinical trials a couple of years ago, and I think that in triple negative, in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, we have watched that with our eyes, uh, uh, not only with saxituzumab that Dr. Grainer talked about it, but as well with immunotherapy, and now in particular with pembrolizumab, so we have been fortunate to see the results of clinical trials that were conducted recently. And then, again, it's the fastest way to find new treatments. So I think that the hope of anyone that goes on a clinical trial in this setting in particular that we are talking today is that the particular treatments that you are going to receive on the clinical trial is going to benefit the patient the, the, the patient, the particular patient that is going on the trial, although we don't have that guarantee. But we know for sure that by participating in a clinical trial, you are helping to advance the field forward by uh, um, contributing to generate more information about usually a new drug or a new drug combination. So I think that in the last years, we have seen the results of two clinical trials come to our clinical practice and uh, at least in the United States, and I apologize that I don't know uh, all the, the drugs that are currently available in other uh, uh, countries, but uh, here in the United States in the last uh, couple of years, uh, uh, either as an accelerated approval or, or a regular approval, we saw uh, two new classes um, of drugs being available for, triple neg for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. One of them was checkpoint inhibitors, initially atezolizumab and pembrolizumab. Now we have pembrolizumab only in combination with different chemotherapy agents. And I think that this was very exciting, not only because of the mechanism of action, the way that immunotherapy works, that it's to try to have the immune system of a, a certain patient partner in the fight against cancer. Um, so this is now available in the armamentarium for treatment of patients with metastatic triple negative, but as well the saxituzumab, and this is a novel uh, um, class of drugs available at least for triple negative breast cancer. We had seen these before and we had these available before in the HER2 positive breast cancer. So these are antibody drug conjugates. So what is this? The antibody drug conjugates is a chemotherapy that it's linked directly. So chemotherapy that in antibody drug conjugates, we, use, we commonly called it the payloads, that it's directly linked to an antibody that goes to a specific marker in the cancer cell. So the two goals of the antibody drug conjugates, one is to try to uh, um, uh, decrease the toxicity of these drugs or of, of the chemotherapy because in theory the chemotherapy is delivered directly to cancer cells. We know that with many antibody drug conjugates, these not uh, uh, work precisely the same way. There is some uh, a drug that it's delivered to the nearby cells, but that is one of the rationals behind the development of these antibody drug conjugates. And on the other hand, by delivering this chemotherapy directly to the cancer cell, 
the idea is that you might be able to deliver a higher dose of chemotherapy that would otherwise not be able to be tolerated and therefore be more effective. So saxituzumab or trodelvi, as Dr. Grana mentioned, was the first, one, the first one that we saw approved for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And I think that in the next years, we are going to be seeing more. There are already more antibody drug conjugates in development in clinical trials, and the hope is that they will be approved and be available in the clinic, even outside the clinical trial. Uh, obviously, this leads to the, to the next question, that it's uh, additional treatment options that are coming from these uh, new drugs and, and, uh, or additional research uh, questions. And some that have been coming is, can we, as, as we think whenever we have a new drug, that is, can we combine it with, with any other drug that is already available? and make it work even better. So based on preclinical work, meaning either, you know, work in our cell lines or with, uh, or, or with uh, 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 mice, can we find out if there is any um, uh, uh, combination? And in particular, uh, I'm thinking in particular about antibody drug conjugates. So if we combine them with immunotherapy or with the PARP inhibitors that Dr. Grainer uh, described to you before, can we increase the response that we are seeing with these agents? So there's a lot of the clinical trials that are ongoing are asking the questions if can we combine antibody drug conjugates with other drugs. I think a question as well is now that we have immunotherapy and antibody drug conjugates approved or one in particular approved in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, if we have other immunotherapy agents or if we have other antibody drug conjugates, will patients still respond? So a question about sequencing and what happens to these patients that progress on immunotherapy or antibody drug conjugates, can they still respond to uh, uh, the same class of drugs, but that's my use uh, different components. Uh, lastly, and, and before, you know, we move to other wonderful speakers that are part of the panel today, uh, I wanted to cover uh, some tips to prevent and manage side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. And I would say, you know, I would again uh, um, reinforce uh, 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 some of the words from Dr. Grana. Saxituzumab in particular is, uh, I think that we were all very happy and excited to have it as another uh, drug to offer to our patients, but it does come with toxicities, and in particular, uh, some fatigue, nausea, drop in your blood count. So it's important that all of us providers uh, uh, become very uh, comfortable to, to deal with these side effects. So I just wanted to share a couple of tips in general. So what I usually tell my patients in general about, for example, nausea and vomiting is start early. So I know that a lot of patients are tired of being on so many medications. So when I come or my team and we discuss about antiemetics, you can do this for nausea and you can do these. And, and if these don't work, you can still try this patch or this sublingual or call us and we'll send you more. I can read in the face of my patients that they are like, don't give me more medication. So nausea is one of those side effects that it's really important that you start early. If you start experiencing, don't wait until that gets too severe or that you are throwing up until you start taking medication. So 
acts early to try to prevent vomiting or feeling really sick or, or, or not being able to drink or keep anything in your stomach that would require a visit to the hospital. The same with constipation. Many of our patients, in addition to some of the treatments that we might be giving to, to fight the cancer that can cause constipation, they are on pain medications as well that, as you all know, one of the side effects is constipation. So before that becomes a severe problem, be on the top of that. Keep a journal about, you know, how am I doing with my bowel movements? Am I getting constipated? Oh, I already added colase and it's still not working. So what else can I do? And might not need to be medications. Might need to be to change your diet. Uh, try some prunes or prune juice, more hydration. But those are two side effects that come from the top of my mind. There is very important that, uh, that patients uh, uh, keep good track of how you are doing. And then I would just add that some of the side effects that we experience or that patients experience do not necessarily need to be uh, treated with medication. So, for example, uh, acupuncture, it's something that we have available at our center. It's one of the favorites from our patients that come here. has been shown to help fight nausea, vomiting, fatigue, anxiety. In some places today, you even have the possibility of receiving acupuncture in the infusion center. So, just, uh, and, and, you know, there are places where there is not available, but ask if it's available. Sometimes you might be surprised and try. And it might not be for you, but it might be for other patients. And then the last thing I wanted to say was exercise. And I always tell my patients, as you are going through chemotherapy, which is common for patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer, don't run for the marathon or don't start preparing for that. The vast majority of our patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer would not be up to it, but try to do something. And this might sound a little bit counterintuitive. You are tired. You just want to be, you know, left alone and not doing much and, uh, and resting. But if you can do a little bit, if you can do just for a walk around the block or just go down the street with one of your loved ones, you know, that little effort might help you actually with, uh, with, uh, with the sensation of level of energy and satisfaction. So it's something that I, I tell my patients to try uh, and see if that makes them feel better. Okay, and I will stop here. I, I could continue to, to talk for the entire hour, but I want to make sure that all my colleagues have a chance to talk as well. Thank you for the opportunity again. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lewis. That was really outstanding and just really, uh, I love the way you address um, all the treatment side effect issues and clinical trials. People, please keep that in mind. These are wonderful suggestions that Dr. Lentz has made, and I know there will also be more questions for you, Dr. Lentz, during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Roberto Leon Ferrer, and Dr. Ferrer's Assistant Professor of Oncology, Consultant Division of Medical Oncology, Mayo Clinic, and he will be addressing guidelines to prepare for telehealth and telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes, key questions to ask your healthcare team, including lifestyle and quality of life concerns, and practical strategies to cope with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ferrer, Dr. Leon Ferrer. 
Thank you, Dr. Messner. And I want to also thank uh, Dr. Messner and all the organizers for having me again. And uh, like my fellow speakers, it's always a pleasure to share any insights we can with the breast cancer community and with the patients and, and family members and friends taking care of them. So um, uh, thanks to Dr. Grant and Dr. Linz. Uh, those were uh, outstanding summaries of uh, the newest developments in triple negative breast cancer. And uh, I will focus my discussion on, on the telemedicine uh, aspect of, uh, of of care in 2021. So uh, everybody knows, of course, that COVID-19, um, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, affected uh, pretty much every facet of our lives, including medicine, particularly. And as Dr. Grana mentioned, initially it has disrupted a lot of the um, routine healthcare for many patients, um, and has led to. Um, also uh, delays in diagnosis and in in some populations and in some instances also affected patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer, you know, as Dr. Grana mentioned, uh, particularly in terms of clinical trial participation. Um, like uh, my fellow speakers' institutions, uh, our institution is also uh, fully uh, online and thankfully able to provide care for patients. But I would say that, you know, without discounting all the all the pain that the COVID-19 pandemic has has caused, I guess that one of the silver linings has been the the wide adoption of uh, telemedicine. And uh, you know, given that uh, many institutions and patients had difficulties getting access to their care team, uh, we were very fortunate here in the United States that um, regulatory uh, regulatory entities and 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 even uh, governmental entities uh, really embraced uh, telemedicine and covering that uh, for many patients. Uh, we hope that that uh, persists. Uh, um, you know, even beyond the pandemic, but uh, this has also brought on uh, some challenges, uh, particularly for patients uh, who may not be uh, particularly versed with the technology used for uh, this telemedicine visits. Uh, so while it has really uh, allowed us to kind of uh, uh, remove barriers uh, in terms of uh, distance and in terms of physical access to the medical team, it has introduced a technological barrier. So I think that it's important as, as patients, as you get um, kind of involved in, in telemedicine visits, to be prepared and to try to do as much of your homework as possible before the visit. Uh, so. Um, one of the key aspects is, um, you know, of course, understanding the technology. And um, most institutions uh, that offer telemedicine visit, visits will have also a team uh, of uh, IT support that can uh, help troubleshoot any problems that uh, you may be having with technology. So I would uh, just encourage people to not be afraid to ask for help if they need to set up their their device and, uh, and trying to test it before the visit, because obviously, as you join the, med the visit with your medical team, you want to try to make the most out of that time together and, um, you know, trying to avoid any glitches in technology that, that prevent you from getting all the answers you need at that point. So uh, I always advise my patients to have that, uh, that number handy and try to ask for help if there's any anticipated problems and if, if you're facing difficulties. It's always helpful to, um, to choose the best 
device that you have available for those visits, whether that's your phone, uh, a computer, or an iPad, or a tablet, uh, you know, trying to really focus on, on one that, that you're familiar with and trying to use that uh, as your primary device for the medical um, telemedicine visit. Um, it's also good, uh, a good habit to try to test the camera and the microphone and the speakers ahead of time to make sure that, um, that you, you're uh, uh, clearly audible to the medical team. And, you know, video is really an important component for us because when we don't see patients physically, um, you know, we don't have the ability to examine you and to, um, you know, kind of perceive certain things that uh, that may clue us into uh, doing uh, additional testing or, or kind of clues that there may be an additional problem going on beyond what this, what you are verbally expressing to us. So at least by, um, by being able to visually inspect how a person is interacting and, and breathing and facial expression, all of that, those are clues that we pick up on and, and that may, may be helpful for us to uh, help guide you in the right direction. Um, so be sure to try to make sure that the video uh, is a component of that. Um, you know, another, uh, another tip uh, is, you know, when possible, if you have a wired Internet connection available, you know, it's, it's always more reliable than, than Wi-Fi. Uh, so try to use that if you, if you have that at your disposal. Otherwise, if you are using and relying on Wi-Fi, try to, uh, try to see what area, uh, you know, if you're going to be doing this from home, try to see what area of your home has the strongest signal so that, that your message comes across. Um, another somewhat obvious um, consideration but that, that I've seen happen is, you know, make sure that if you're using your phone or tablet, make sure you have it fully charged or that you have it plugged in uh, to the electricity. Um, you know, I've, I've had, unfortunately, uh, situations where the device, uh, you know, runs out of battery from my patient's end, and then the visit gets interrupted, and then we have difficulties connecting again. So uh, just little things that can go a great, uh, you know, uh, a great distance, you know, in, in making out the most of your visit. Um, it's also important to try to find a quiet space. Uh, you know, the advantage of the video visits as well is that you can coordinate with family members or your support system if they want to be present and you're okay with that. But it's also important to make sure that, uh, that we can communicate in, uh, as a team and that our message can be clearly understood by everybody involved in the, in the visit. So try to find a quiet space uh, so that uh, neither you or your team are, are too distracted by ambient noise or, or, or things that may be going around. Uh, of course, we understand that, you know, uh, we all have uh, um, busy lives at home, so don't, don't feel discouraged if you, you know, for, for people that have, uh, let's say, small children, pets, or things that are a little more difficult to predict. Uh, we all understand that, and as physicians, we're, you know, uh, those interruptions will always be okay. But as much as possible, uh, try to, uh, to, to think a little bit ahead of time when you're preparing for your visit. Um, something that I think is very important, regardless of whether the visit is happening in person or using telemedicine, is to uh, to try to write down the questions that that you want to have answered ahead of time. Uh, you know, many times when you're in the in the in the middle of the visit, and, and particularly if you're doing this over telemedicine and you have technology difficulties, you know, your mind can go blank, and you may forget about important questions that that you wanted to ask. So try to have your running list of things that. Uh, you want to discuss uh, with the 
uh, with the providers uh, ahead of time. And similarly, if you have had any uh, testing or any recent changes in your health or anything that your provider may not be aware of that happened in a different facility, you know, make sure you try to have all of those uh, results or reports with you so that you can have that uh, productive discussion with your, with your team. Along uh, testing and results, uh, one of the, uh, the recent um, uh, increased adoptions uh, from patients and from many uh, facilities has been the use of electronic portals that allow uh, patients to either communicate via messages with their team or uh, also access the clinical notes and the results from any blood work, scans, or biopsies through an electronic portal, which uh, clearly has um, you know, kind of uh, made these results a lot more available to patients and allows patients to be much more engaged on their, um, in their care. Um, I would uh, always caution you that whenever you have testing and you see results, uh, when you have the testing, try to discuss with your team what will be the, the preferred way of communicating the results, you know, whether you prefer a phone call, another visit, you know, or, uh, or if you want messages through the portal uh, to discuss results. It's always good to have a plan ahead of time um, because you may have some results that, that, that you get access to through, uh, through your online portal that you may not fully understand what the implications are of that result or what they mean. So it's important to uh, rely on your medical team uh, to, before you arrive to conclusions because sometimes you know, there will be laboratory results that may be flagged as abnormal, uh, but really when your provider reviews them, they, they may share, well, this is actually just a little out of range and it's not something that I'm particularly worried about. And you know, it may create some anxiety until you have that discussion with your team. So I would always encourage you uh, to rely on your team to help you interpret those results. By all means, review them, uh, access them, and, and have questions about them, but um, I, I would say rely on your team to, uh, to, to try to interpret them. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, since we're, we're running a little bit over time, um, I just wanted to uh, cover a couple of aspects in terms of uh, key questions to make sure you ask, particularly when you're part of a, of a telemedicine visit. And I think that um, one of the aspects of this is that you know when we were meeting in person, uh, when when we are meeting in person with a patient, uh, usually we we have um, you know a lot of non-verbal um, you know. Um, um, kind of uh, communication that allows us to understand, you know, if a patient or their families are concerned about a particular topic that was discussed. So this is a little lost in telemedicine visits. So uh, it's important to voice any concerns that you have and talk to your team and, and, and tell your provider if there's something that was discussed that has you worried and make sure that we understand what your concerns are so that um, we can clear them up and either, uh, you know, clarify if there was something misunderstood or give you tips to try to cope with any, any issues that may arise. Um, so be always sure to ask about all your treatment options, uh, benefits and risks of any uh, particular treatment option that is presented, and that includes clinical trials, as my colleagues have alluded to. Uh, it's also important to voice your preferences in terms of um, those schedule uh, of a particular medicine and whether you prefer oral or IV medications, as Dr. Grana had mentioned, because many times we may present the ideal option in our minds in terms of the data, but there may be additional options. There's almost always additional options that uh, perhaps align better with your preferences. So always um, kind of 
you know, don't be afraid to to voice those and tell someone what are your preferences in terms of schedule and and and, and route of administration of the medications. Uh, so with that, I, I will uh, uh, give it back to Dr. Messner and, and happy to answer any questions at the end. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Leon, for that was really excellent, excellent presentation. Just wonderful information for everybody, and so appreciate your speaking on this program today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, our next speaker is um, Ms. Haley Dinnerman. And Ms. Dinnerman is um, the co-founder and executive director of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And Ms. Dinnerman actually, I have to say, for many, many years now has supported so many different triple negative breast cancer workshops, events, conferences, um, programs like this, um, just amazingly. And she will be discussing the free programs of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Dinnerman. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for that kind introduction. And thank you also to my fellow speakers for the excellent presentations. Um, thank you to our sponsors and, of course, to all of you listening today. Today's teleconference is one of many programs offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. All our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the triple negative community, from patients to survivors to caregivers and loved ones. Issues of importance to those in our community living with metastatic disease are addressed in many of our programs, including this one. Today, I'd like to highlight a few of our other offerings. First, we have many TNBC-specific educational brochures and fact sheets that are available in print or also as free downloads from our website. Our popular materials were developed with input from members of our TNBC community, as well as esteemed medical experts in the area of TNBC. Like all of our other educational materials, these brochures address living with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. The materials also address topics of particular interest to certain members of our TNBC community, including African-American women and those with BRCA mutations. We really work hard to make sure that every member of our community can find relevant information and practical guidance in these materials, so I hope you will be able to use them to your benefit. Our website, tnbcfoundation.org, offers a free clinical trials matching service specific to metastatic TNBC. We're told it's much easier to navigate than other portals, so if you're considering clinical trials, please take a look. Our website also has a constantly updated TNBC news section and a favorite of our community, our online discussion forums. These forums allow you to easily connect with others who are living with metastatic triple negative breast cancer at any time of the day or night. Our community members use these forums to ask questions about treatment, about how to manage side effects, and so much more. But most importantly, our discussion forums offer consistent support. So if you aren't currently registered for the forums, you should consider joining them, and you can even join anonymously. Another excellent source of information and support can be found on our private Facebook groups. All of these online resources are here to help you and to remind you that you are not alone. While the TNVC Foundation normally makes every opportunity to meet with you in person, given the ongoing pandemic, we've had to make adjustments for everyone's safety. So until we can meet in person, we are expanding on our virtual programs. We have two wonderful online meetups for the TNBC community 
Tuesdays with TNBC Friends and Metastatic Mondays. Our next Metastatic Monday with TNBC Friends is scheduled for Monday, October 11th. It's a wonderful online support group that has allowed us to connect as a community throughout this pandemic. You can sign up for our next meetups on tnbcfoundation.org. We're also planning programs surrounding the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in December. We hope to take you along with us virtually so that you can learn about new and emerging TNPC research. We're working hard to make it a great experience, and I hope you'll be able to join us. If you follow us on Facebook or visit us on our website, you'll get regular updates on this and be able to register for all of our programs. Um, we're also working on opportunities to connect with you in person as soon as the pandemic is under control and things are safe. So please look out for information from us on that as well. In the meantime, we look forward to connecting with you on social media, by phone, or online at tnbcfoundation.org. So once again, thank you for joining us, and I'll now turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Zinnerman. That was wonderful. And what a wonderful organization with so many resources for people. And um, so thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Samantha Fortune. Ms. Fortune is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she'll be discussing how to find the financial, emotional, and social support to cope and review of the free services of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, as Dr. Messner mentioned, my name is Sam, and I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Um, my role at Cancer Care includes providing supportive services to individuals and family impacted by a triple negative breast cancer diagnosis. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care have partnered together to ensure that those diagnosed with TNBC have access to free psychosocial and financial services and support. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation has also generously funded the TNBC Helpline, which provides callers with access to comprehensive services. There are many aspects of the triple negative breast cancer diagnosis that could be addressed through psychosocial support services. By calling the TNBC Helpline, individuals are connected to an oncology social worker who is aware of the physical, emotional, and practical challenges that may arise when diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Furthermore, connecting with a social worker or patient navigator at your treatment center could be helpful in exploring local support services available to you. Some of the comprehensive services that the Triple Negative Breast Cancer, Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care provide include case management, counseling, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. Cancer Care also offers TNBC-specific national online support groups, which are moderated by our oncology social workers. You can register for an online support group through cancercare.org by selecting our services, then hitting support groups. Our support groups provide members with the opportunity to speak with others affected by triple negative breast cancer, gather information, and provide support. People diagnosed with metastatic triple negative breast cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment. Please note that if you're encountering, encountering such financial hardship, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care offers case management services, which are short-term, strength-based approach to help patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A trained specialist will work with the client in efforts to connect them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. It can also be helpful 
um, to connect to a social worker, a patient navigator, or the financial department in your treatment center to see if there are any other financial options available to you. Navigating through a metastatic triple negative breast cancer diagnosis can be stressful and emotionally difficult. In addition to the individualized and group support I mentioned earlier, self-care and relaxation practices may be helpful during these challenging times. Some examples of self-care include journaling, yoga, meditation, mindfulness exercise, listening to music, or spiritual, spiritual practices. Also, speaking to loved ones about your feelings may provide some sort of comfort and relief. If you're interested in learning more about the support services the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation or Cancer Care offers, I encourage you to call our, hotline, our helpline at 877-880-8622. And then we will be able to offer you support and help you navigate through any challenges you may face. It's been a pleasure being part of this very important, informative program. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us today, and thank you for having me speak with you all. Um, and I'll turn the program back to Dr. Messner now. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune. That was really excellent and wonderful resources for people, so please take advantage of them. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. And um, we're going to, uh, I know there are lots of questions. I'm going to ask Michelle to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. We have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and this will be for Dr. Grana. Um, a question about the inconsistency on follow-up for recurrence, um, recurrent METs in triple negative breast cancer. Um, and the question is, some oncologists wait for symptoms of metastatic disease, so headache, shortness of breath, bone pain, while others order a PET scan and other tests. Could you comment on that question, Dr. Grana? There's been, absolutely, there's been a lot of debate for many years about early stage breast cancer and how you follow those patients to find recurrence. And there's actually no literature that supports the use of bone scans, CAT scans, PET scans, or tumor markers in early stage disease because we've never shown that that helps you find disease early. You can have a perfectly negative scan and three months later have widespread metastatic disease. The American Society of Clinical Oncology, which is our sort of guiding light, actually published a statement saying that these should not be followed in early stage disease. So I would say that most oncologists don't follow those markers. I think the future may be different. There's some interesting work being done looking at circulating tumor cells, maybe as predictors of recurrence. So the future may be different, but I sometimes find that we spend time talking to patients about why we don't do these things. Patients want to be scanned, but we're putting you through radiation exposure and a lot of things when we don't have data to support that it's beneficial. We spend a lot of time talking to patients about this issue um, and trying to explain why we don't do it. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Linz. Um, what do you recommend for healthcare providers working with a patient who is consistently averse to getting help? Hmm. Um, wonderful question. Um, so the question, if I understand, is what do I recommend for providers 
that are taking care of patients that do not want help. Is that right? Don't want the treatment recommended or the help, yes. So I, I think, you know, I look at taking care of patients with uh, cancer as a, a, a partnership and a journey. So I think that we need to be honest as providers to say, based on the data that is available, what is my best recommendation and what I think that has the highest likelihoods for patients to do well. But then, you know, there's a lot going on and the patients make their own decisions based on where they are in their journey at that point. So what I say is don't close the door. And I want that it's important that patients know where you stand in terms of your recommendations and that uh, you recommend A based on this, this, and that, and perhaps B and C, you don't think that these are the best options for the patient, but to, know that, but to make sure that patients know that you care about them and you are there if they want to come back and rediscuss or if they change their minds or if they want to come back and discuss it further. So it, it's a, a relationship, it's a partnership, and, you know, and, and can be um, revisited uh, whenever the patient is interested. Excellent, thank you. And um, uh, and we have a question for um, Ms. Fortune. Um, in terms of people who are averse to getting help, in terms of just even psychosocial support and help, if you could comment on people who just seem to have a hard time, perhaps the patient, but perhaps the caregivers, if you could comment on how we help people um, or how we help other members of the family if someone doesn't want help. Yeah, sure. So um, a lot of people cope with cancer differently, and it takes some, especially people who are initially diagnosed, it takes time for them to process a lot. So I always tell um, patients, especially caregivers, to give the person time to kind of process what they're thinking and what they're going through and give them that time to be open to those resources. But in the, that meantime, you can also educate yourself familiarize yourself with also the available resources that they are available so by the time like the loved one is ready for or open to support at least you have that information that you can present to them excellent thank you and um I want to thank all of our speakers today. They've really been just amazing. I know we could go on for another hour if not longer but we um really uh uh, this has been a phenomenal program. It's one that we probably need to do again because actually there's so many more questions and so many more topics that we could, um, you know, be, ad be addressing in the future. So before we conclude today, I just want to just go over with you a few things. Um, most importantly, we hope that you um, have been able to, um, to learn um, a number of things from today's program that will be helpful to you. Um, we also hope that none of you leave the call today feeling that you're alone, that, you're, that there is no one to support you. We hope that you now know that you're part of a community of support, um, a, a community that consists of your healthcare team, um, of the, the, the people at uh, Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, all those services, um, our cancer care staff, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer um, helpline, all of these services, we want you to know that you're now a part of, and simply a telephone call or a mouse click away from contacting us. 
Um, so, and also you can go to our website as well and get information there. At the end of today's program, you'll all be getting um, a SurveyMonkey evaluation. Actually, you'll probably get it tomorrow. And in that evaluation, you'll have a chance to evaluate the program, but you'll also have a chance to get additional everything in writing that we said that was a resource mentioned to you today that you'll be able to utilize. So remember that it is very, um, it's not uncommon for people to feel alone or as if there's no one out there for them. We want you to know that there are a lot of organizations out there and a lot of support services for you. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.